Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 11 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. How you doing, Gavin? I'm real stressed, Mike. <laughs> would you Would you like to talk about why you're real stressed? Because I, you know, I mostly know why you're real stressed. But is is this suddenly a therapy podcast? I mean, we're not qualified be. for that. What? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Speak for yourself. I do therapy just about every day when I'm at school. Man, teachers are really overworked. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be your job. <laughs> And yet, but anyway. here, and yet here we are. So yeah. we certainly don't but have no, to just, make the uh, same. Yeah, go ahead. But yeah, just just master's thesis things. Uh, so yeah, at the time you're all hearing this, uh, if you are listening to it the day it comes out uh, on Wednesday, I will have gotten a, a, a draft of my thesis, not even the whole thing, uh, but a draft of my thesis to my advisor on Monday, the day we are currently recording. So immediately after we're done recording this, I'm going back to my lab, uh, even though it's uh, currently... Uh, like 6.45-ish at, uh, at night. Oh, goodness. And I'm having coffee right now because uh, I'm actually insane. So, I, I mean... We, I mean, we, and we will have a whole episode dedicated to my master's thesis at some point in the future. I believe we've um, been teasing that episode since episode one. I think we have too. Uh, and it will happen. Uh, I want to get it more complete than it currently is uh it is currently at uh around 70 pages and about fifteen thousand words so and that's not including any figures or pictures or anything yeah Yeah, it's gonna be very long (laughs) and we definitely i'm definitely looking forward to uh uh to hearing about it once it's more fleshed out and the uh just the tantalizingness of knowing that it's coming without actually being able to hear it is uh you know the anticipation is almost good enough yeah, and it's like, you know, I really could just boil it down to about a two-minute spiel. And honestly, that's kind of how I prefer to talk about it, because I'm like, as much as I enjoy what I do, um, it's just so much stress at the current moment that I'm like, I just want it done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I don't think anybody would blame you for that, for uh, yeah. for getting it out of the way. And then once it's kind of in the past, it's a lot easier to talk about something like that. Once it's exactly. in the past, then yeah. while it's actually happening. So that doesn't mean we don't have plenty to talk about today, including this episode's coming out on uh, on February 17th. So this week in science, Gavin, uh, what, do, what do we have this week in science? So I'm cheating a little bit in that uh, this is coming from uh, this coming Sunday. So it's technically next week. But the way the, the way the calendar that I read off of is set up is that Saturdays and Sundays are on the same page. So I'll be... Doing a little bit of a wombo combo today for Saturday and Sunday, the twentieth cool and twenty first. And by yeah. the way, like it's—is it ridiculous to anybody else that Sunday is the start of the week, even though it's part of the weekend? Not according to this calendar, it's not. Apparently, well, it's the same as Saturday. <laughs> well, I agree with that calendar. It's—it is weird to me that we begin the week with Sunday. I agree. Anyways, Anywho, what do we got? In twenty thirteen, let's see. Yeah, so February 20th, 2013, Neurological Basis of Human Speech Discovered. So not really paleontology-related, but still, you know, I'm a biologist. But it so, says, the, uh, so is it like oh, where in the brain? Or like what? Let's find out. Okay. So researchers from the uni- uh, University of California, San Francisco, announced the discovery of the area of the brain responsible for speech motor control. 
Experts say that fully understanding the neurological mechanics of speech will help the development of computer brain interfaces. Oh, Jesus. And in the treatment of speech <laughs> disorders. Okay, that one's much better. We have um, returned to AI. We, this calendar loves AI. <laughs> and, like, the reason why we started doing of the week, you know, you know, this week in science instead of, like, today in science is because, you know, more often than not, it would be something completely unrelated to this podcast if we just <laughs> happened to do whatever was on that Wednesday. But more often than not, it was going to be something about like computers or AI. And don't get me wrong. I really like computers. You know, I, I built my own desktop computer that, you know, you're hearing me all from. And so like, I, I like computers, but like the, the, the phrase computer brain interface horrifies me. <laughs> uh, as it should. That's uh, just hearing that it's... <laughs> It definitely horrifies me. Have we, are we officially uh, anti-AI on this podcast? Is that an official stance that we take? Um, I'm not even sure what depends. I think there, about I it. I mean, there's there's many different kinds of AI. Right. So are, are we appropriately scared of it? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, we absolutely are uh, tentatively scared of it. Um, we, we are both AI curious and AI terrified. <laughs> um, anyway, so because we're doing the Wombo Combo on... February 21st, 2019, the headline is Bronze Age Humans Domesticated Foxes. Ooh. More out of speed. Yeah, correct. But now I'm, is there anything specific about that date that is uh, relevant? That's just when they found, or when the evidence got published. Ah, okay. That makes way more sense. So on that date in, uh, I guess, two years ago. We have uh, Bronze Age Humans Domesticate Foxes. So this is research from the Spanish Foundation for Science and Technology uh, provided evidence that peoples from the Northeast Iberian Peninsula, which is the uh, peninsula that uh, like Spain and Portugal are on, uh, domesticated foxes as well as dogs. Excavation of tombs in the area showed that masters uh, were often buried with both animals, which are presumed to have been pets. Oh, that's kind of adorable. That is very adorable. And now, okay, I'm going to say this, and I don't actually mean it because I would not <laughs> be able to appropriately care for a fox, but I low-key kind of want a fox. Oh, absolutely. There's a there's a bunch of little animals that I'm like, or, you know, even very, very large animals that uh, that I would love. <laughs> Do you remember, and this is getting very far afield, but I uh, I am okay with it. When, um, when we were young, did you ever go on like Nick.com? To play their uh, their flash games, which one specifically? Because I, I didn't do Nick all that often. I did just all like the generic flash games. I know I played a lot of like Bloons Tower Defense. I still oh, I play still Bloons play Tower Bloons Defense. Ta- Absolutely, I, love I still Bloons play Tower Defense. One hundred percent. There was um, the Wild Thornberries had this game on Nick.com mm. where you yes. could like have like this whole wild animal playpen thing, and you couldn't put certain <laughs> animals together because they'd get eaten. And I just remember they had these baby cheetahs that I thought were adorable, and I would just try and rescue as many baby cheetahs as I possibly could. As you should. Cheetahs are not doing well. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Well, realistically, it's, it's sort of, I think we've talked about before uh, with pandas, how pandas are just not good and will probably go extinct anyway. Cheetahs are kind of in the same boat in that they're they're just not the most competitive of animals. Really, that's that is stunning considering they're 
correct me if I'm wrong, the fastest land animal? Like close? Like they're they're very close, if not the fastest. Depends um, on how you count, I guess. Not quite, but it's like it's debatable whether like pronghorn antelope here in North America run faster. Um But yeah, it's it's like they're just like actual like kill completion percentage is really bad. That's kind of stunning. I never would have thought yeah, that. Yeah, no, they they fail. I think it's about 50-50 to be honest. And you know, I'm not like a cheetah expert by any means. Um but yeah, they're just not the most efficient of predators. They're not very strong. So it's like even when they do kill something, like a lot of times it'll get stolen from them because like you know, yeah, they're real fast. And they can catch a gazelle and kill a gazelle, but like if a lion comes up or a hyena comes up, what's it gonna do? I never would have considered that that they were that kind of defenseless against uh, against other you know other animals of the jungle. At least the way I would think about it. Well, none of those animals live in the jungle. So. Okay, well, mm, fair, fair <laughs> enough. I will I will accept your pedantry as uh, as accurate for this podcast. Um. Anyways, we should probably get going on, uh, on what we're talking about today, and uh, hopefully today we are going to be kind of putting a nice little conclusion, or at least a, a conclusion for now, on our yeah. fieldwork series. This is going to be fieldwork part three, and uh, and I assume that eventually, assuming this podcast goes on for long enough, that we'll be able to add to this series, because hopefully you'll be going out into the field eventually, but uh, up to now, it looks like we are coming to the conclusion of the times that you've been out in the field. Yeah, so we're, we're picking up with uh, my, my field work for basically that I've done just in grad school. So if you haven't heard uh, any of our previous episodes about my uh, field work, you know, episodes four and episode 10, uh, where I talk about some stuff that I did in undergrad, uh, make sure to go check those out. But now we're talking about stuff that I've basically just done in the last year and a half since fall 2019. Uh, and I'm super lucky in that... Uh, you know, as, as I've said a bunch of times that a, my undergrad school promoted field work a lot, but also that now my, my graduate school does as well. Um, so my first bit of field work was actually something really interesting in a place that like, I honestly, I'd, I'd always been like, I want to go there, but I never actually thought that I would. Uh, and that's Yellowstone national park, <laughs> which was incredible. Ooh. Um, so I think I it was imagine. the. Yeah, I think it was the second weekend of classes. So I, I had been in, you know, at this school in, in this state for less than two weeks at this point or, or about two weeks. Um, and I think like on the, the day before classes started, uh, I was just like at the office, you know, making sure that I had everything, make sure, you know, setting up like my office space before that got taken away from me because of COVID. Um <laughs> And I, I bumped into like our office secretary or like department secretary. And she was like, oh, hey, you must be, you know, so-and-so. I'm like, yep, that's me. And uh, she was like, well, if you want to get to know people, the department's offering a trip to Yellowstone. And, you know, she gave me the date. Just casually offering like, a trip to Yellowstone. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's like it's not terribly far away from where I currently live. Uh, it's about eight hours away, uh, <laughs> which out here. You know, from Rapid City, South Dakota, is about as close as anything else, realistically. Uh, yeah, fair uh, enough. So, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and I was like, "Well, you know, how much is it?" And she was like, 20 bucks." I'm like, "What?" She's like, "Yeah." <laughs> okay, that's She's like 
it yeah, was, it was it was twenty bucks for the transportation there. We took like you know department vehicles, um, the food, and the camping. So like if we wanted extra stuff, like obviously stuff at like the gift shop or anything, or we wanted to do, you know, anything else that cost money at the park, which there really wasn't a lot of anyway. Um, we had to pay for that, but like, yeah, twenty bucks got me four days in Yellowstone. No, I'm, like, I'm not going to complain about that. <laughs> absolutely not. Now, were you a gift shop person? Were you uh, were you eyeing the gift shop? I absolutely was. So, okay, side <laughs> tangent. One of my things that I love to collect, and I've collected these since I was a little kid, other than rocks, is uh, those like souvenir pennies. Oh wow! Okay. Where where you put the like you know the two quarters in, then your penny. And Mm -hmm. you like turn the thing and it, you know, crushes your penny and puts an imprint on it. I have um, probably close to 40 different ones of those. I've got a pretty good collection from a lot of different states like New York, Virginia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, California, Ohio, South Dakota, Wyoming. Um, Many from lots of different stuff in Florida because we went there for my senior trip in high school. Um, Right. Yeah, so I've got a really big collection of those. So the entire time, I'm like, okay, there's got to be one here. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I found it in the in the in the gift shop. Uh, but I also bought. Uh, most of my friends know I'm a very avid caffeine act addict. Um, so I bought uh, like a bag of like Yellowstone coffee, which I'm oh, wow. sure I'm sure you know it's not like they grow it there. So I don't know what's yeah, different about it. I haven't <laughs> drank any yet. It's still unopened. It's literally sitting on my bookshelf so um what else did i get from there oh i bought my niece uh, a little like stuffed bison oh yeah because she was uh she was about four months old at the time i think yeah um but yep so now that's just kind of hanging out in a room and i see it whenever i go over to uh to my sister's house when i'm you know back home was this the but, same niece yeah. that was anyway. watching Moana during one of our episodes? It absolutely is. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yep. So I got her this little, you know, cute stuffed bison. And then I, I got a couple things for my parents as well. Um, but yes, I'm very much a gift shop person. But Very cool. Uh, so this is, uh, this is fall 2019 that you're in Yellowstone. And mm-hmm. what's actually going on? So how long are you there for exactly? So I was there for four days. So we left on a Thursday. So I, I guess, um, Oh, am I even remembering this correctly? See, this is what happens when I'm in like thesis brain mode is that I can't think of anything else. Um, so I know we missed at least one full day of classes, but I feel like, okay. Which I didn't, and I didn't have class on Friday. So that means we must've left on a Thursday. Um, Yeah, so we left on a Thursday, so we were there for all of Friday and Saturday, and then came back Sunday. Okay, so this seems like an abbreviated uh, stint out in the field as compared to some of your earlier work. Oh, definitely. Like, this was much more of a tourist-type thing, but the reason why I sort of consider it fieldwork is because we went with somebody from my school who's one of, like, the main people studying Old Faithful. All right, so this was kind of a, uh, a shorter trip than you're used to for your previous field works and I assume your subsequent field works. But what kind of work were you actually doing out there at Yellowstone? This sounds like it was a, a really cool opportunity. What exactly what exactly was the work you guys were doing? So this was mostly like a, like an educational trip. 
So we were going with uh, Dr. Kevin Ward, uh, one of our professors at, at my school, and he's one of the main people studying Old Faithful. Uh, he's like a geophysicist, so he studies like the physics behind, you know, why they erupt, you know, geysers and things like that erupt water like they do, uh, because we don't really, you know, fully understand why they do some of these things. Uh, but that's sort of, he was like our guide for, for the weekend. And it's, it's really funny. So we actually ended up giving, getting him, uh, from one of the gift shops, like a little ranger, uh, badge, like junior ranger badge that usually would get for kids, but we gave one to him. Uh, (laughs) and he was, uh, he was pretty, he thought it was, he thought it was funny. Uh, I was going to ask, was he a good sport about that? Yeah, he was a really good sport about it, but it was just really cool to be led around obviously such like a really cool like not, not just like natural environment, but like geological environment too, by like one of the world experts on it. So that was, does that like, does that hit you as it's happening? Like, like, Oh wow. You know, like if I was to ask anybody on the planet about what's going on here, about what's happening, this is the guy like, that's like, that'd be one of those things I wouldn't think would hit me until, you know, kind of after the fact, just realizing how lucky I was. Kind of. Yeah. Cause like, and, and granted, you know, we sort of planned, you know, our, our days based on like what we wanted to do. Like there were a couple trips because like I said, it was like an educational type trip. It reminded me a lot of uh, those geology 400 trips that I mentioned uh, in, in the last one where we would just sort of take the weekend trip based on what the professor did. And it sort of vary from professor to professor. So this reminded me very much of like one of those trips that would have been led by him if my, you know, current school had a class like that. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there was no like grade for it or anything, so we didn't have to turn in notes or anything. But um, people could generally sort of do what they wanted, so I wasn't with him the whole time. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really really cool, and I guess maybe just like being a scientist, you're you're kind of around people who are like world experts in something kind of all the time. (laughs) So it doesn't, it didn't hit me as much as it might some other people. (laughs) Uh, I I guess that makes some amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, Now we did. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) No, well, I was, uh, I was going to say, so you, you know, this wasn't for a class. It wasn't like you were up against any kind of a, uh, a deadline here. So, was that sort of freeing in a way? Was it one of those things that it almost makes it harder to work when you don't quite have criteria? What like what was it like working, you know, kind of without any sort of uh, any definitive end goal in mind that somebody else was going to look at? Not really, because it was basically, I kind of thought about it more like ecotourism than I did like a class. Like I did learn some things. I don't remember a lot of them at this point. So it's not like I really <laughs> focused on committing them to memory. I was mostly there for the experience. Uh, gotcha. Which honestly is kind of how I think, you know, cause as we talked about in episode four, pretty much anybody can go out and do geologic field work, you know? So I, I kind of, you know, I didn't think about it this way at the time, but sort of looking back on it now, I kind of approached it like somebody doing like volunteer geological field work where I'm just like, I'm here to learn. I'm here just to have fun and and for the experience, you know? Uh, And obviously it was an incredible experience. Uh, I actually got to see a double rainbow, almost a triple rainbow. It was really cool. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> although I will say, uh, it wasn't all super fun. So we were there, I think the first or second week in September. And okay. every night that we were there, it got quite a bit below freezing. Really? Yep. Wow. I would not. Is that normal for, for Yellowstone that time of year? Yeah, just because it's so high in elevation. You know what? I never. That makes way more sense. It's, it's I never in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, I or guess at that, least like, at least on the outskirts of them. Well, um, right, but still the the elevation. I never that just never crossed my mind. Like the elevation mm-hmm. there would make it, you know, would make it so cold that night. Now, was it hot during the days at all? Oh yeah, it was warm enough to just be walking around in like you know pants and a t shirt, like comfortably, you know. Um, Plus, there was all like the geothermal hot springs around as well, so those that probably you know, helps. Were obviously quite warm, uh, <laughs> and then I was there. Like a big reason why I was really excited to go was the wildlife, just because uh, you know I, I had seen bison before, and they are bison, not buffalo. There's a difference. <sighs> we have clarified that part before. We absolutely have, but I want to reiterate it. Um, and so. Uh, I'd seen them before, but I had not seen uh, really like wolves in the wild. And unfortunately, we didn't get to. Uh, they tend to be pretty, you know, um, reclusive. They don't tend to just kind of hop out and let people see them. Um, mm-hmm. But I also really wanted to see a bear. Which might now, sound kind of dumb, but I wanted to see it. <laughs> now, what kind of bears is it? Do they have grizzly bears over there oh, yeah. or are they black? Bears? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's those are no joke. From from a respectable distance, of course. Um, <laughs> I assume you weren't going to go up and pet one. No, uh, but so, so probably my favorite experience of the trip was uh, some of us uh, got to hike the, I believe it's the highest peak in the park, which is Mount Washburn. And uh, it was, it was really, you know, hiking is one thing, you know, I'm used to hiking. Hiking at that altitude is really different. <laughs> <laughs> you could tear you it could, really takes that much out of you oh yeah you could tell as you were climbing that the air was getting a little thin uh just like you, you'd get more easily fatigued uh right. you'd have you'd have to stop for for breaks more often um but you could definitely tell uh, that's that's one of those wild things i almost want to experience that mm-hmm. just to know just to kind of know what that's like when the air around me is changing and the air around me is not what i'm used to like that's that's one of those things that's kind of wild and I don't think I would, you know, internalize it until I actually experience it. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about it until it was already happening. And I was like, Oh, okay. We're, we're getting pretty up there. Uh, but the, <laughs> the whole reason that I went on this, cause this was an optional hike. Um, because, and they told, I think they had planned on it, but then they realized that like some specific trails are either closed or highly cautioned against hiking on them due to increased bear activity in the fall. <laughs> because before the bears hibernate, they want to pack on as much weight as they can. Uh huh. And you know, a nice human. Yeah, that's uh, some good red meat that, there. That's yeah, that's some good meat. Uh, so fortunately, I mean, they they weren't going to let us go if there was only going to be like three of us. So I think at least like six or seven of us went, uh, and we had at least two, maybe three cans of bear spray. And my understanding of bears is that if you're traveling in groups of larger than about four or five people, they tend to leave you alone 
or yeah. even if they do sort of poke their nose around, they're they're not too interested in going after a group of humans as opposed to one or two. Generally, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it varies from bear to bear, but of course, right. So the obviously it was an incredible, you know, it was a great hike. It was a great view once we got up there because there was like a like an information center at the top, so you weren't just standing up there in the cold and, and the wind. Uh, so you could go inside, warm up a bit, but. Uh, yeah, the main reason I went on that hike was because I wanted to see a bear. Unfortunately, it did not happen. Uh, <laughs> well, still, it still sounds like it was a pretty successful trip overall, you know, as short as it may have been. Oh, yeah, it was incredible. Like, if you ever get any form of a chance to go to Yellowstone, take it. Uh, it's not an easy place to get to just because, A, there's nothing else in Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> um, you'd probably have to fly into somewhere in Montana. It would probably, probably be the quickest way to get there. Um, and I don't even know where that would be. There's probably an airport in Bozeman or Billings. Uh, that'd probably be your best bet. But if, if you have, you know, a spare week, maybe, maybe a little longer if you, that you don't know what to do and you've got, you know, a decent, you know, enough money for a plane ticket, uh, especially with the summer coming up. I don't know. Maybe take a trip to Yellowstone. It was really great. I'm sensing a road trip this summer. Not for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have money. <laughs> Anywho. Well, we need we need some uh, some advertisers to come on here and uh, start making this podcast a little more lucrative. Ooh, yeah. So we can do live recordings out in the field. Ooh, that'd be neat. That'd be wonderful. So is there anything left to say on uh, on Yellowstone or was this kind of a um, a fun trip if, you know, maybe less consequential for your formal academics, but, you know, quite a bit of fun and very memorable. Anything left to say on Yellowstone? Not really. Wonderful. Then I think we can move on here. So Yellowstone was in the fall of your, or I guess it was the summer, um, heading into grad school, correct? If it was September? Well, I mean, it was like the first or second week of grad school. Okay. So that was first or second week of grad school. So early on in grad school, our next one, I see here black Hills and I'm not going to lie. I don't know where that is. So <laughs> where, where are we talking about? When is, when is this happening? What's going on? Let's, uh, you know, let's start here with our penultimate one. So, uh, the black Hills is, uh, a really neat geological area in, uh, Western South Dakota, Eastern Wyoming. And, uh, basically it's, it's like technically part of the Rockies, but, uh, really, you know, quite separate. Cause it's just completely isolated. It reminds me a lot of the Adirondack mountains that, you know, you and I know pretty well. So it's basically just this isolated range of mountains, uh, that has some really neat geology to it because, uh, sort of similar to the Adirondacks, it's got this spot in the middle uh, something that, you know, geologists call a pluton, which is basically just a big chunk of, you know, and it could be, you know, various chunks as well, but of uh, igneous rocks that form deep underground and then get uplifted. Uh, it's huh. generally what you find at like the center, at like the, the oldest parts of uh, some mountains, like the Adirondacks has a, has a pluton as well. But, and then it's surrounded by sedimentary rocks. And so uh, I got to explore the Black Hills quite a bit because uh, I was teaching uh, the, the lab part of our sedimentary geology and stratigraphy class. 
uh, also that same semester that I went to Yellowstone. So that was really interesting. But these were much more in the sort of three hour snippets that you get to do like during a normal lab during the semester. Mm -hmm. So didn't get to explore super far. Uh, but we did get to see lots of cool rocks, which was neat. And there's actually this really neat spot. Um, well, it's not just one spot. It's pretty much circles the, the entire Black Hills. But uh, something that we call the Great Unconformity. That's a great name. So for the uh, not geologically, uh, geologically inclined, uh, an unconformity is basically just a general term that we use when there's like a gap in time. So for example, uh, say you have some rocks from the Cambrian at like roughly 500 million years ago. And then you don't, you know, the, the layer of rocks right above that is say from the Cretaceous only maybe 70 million years ago. That gap in time is called an unconformity. That can be from a variety of reasons, whether it's, uh, you know, there just wasn't a lot of deposition. So no rocks got deposited at that point could be due to erosion uh, you know, that place that was underwater and deposited some sediments got uplifted. So it was then above the water. And Could then... it be aliens? No. <laughs> That's no... I... Normally, as a scientist, I don't like just saying no. I've never heard you be more disappointed in saying no before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I would be lying if I said there wasn't a twinge of disappointment in there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so usually it's due to erosion. Sometimes it's due to just like a lack of deposition. This one, however, is called the great unconformity because there's a billion years of missing time. That seems rather significant considering that the planet, correct me if I'm wrong, is only about 4 billion years old. Yep. Well, like four and so, a half. Okay. So, you know somewhere between 20 to 25% of Earth's history is just missing, whereas I'm assuming that other unconformities are significantly smaller in just stature. Yeah, so, I don't know. Anything super old rock-wise, like, it's not like we have rocks from 4.6 billion years ago, which is when we think the Earth formed. We just don't because, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole planet was molten, so, like, there weren't solid rocks to begin with the oldest okay. rocks that i'm aware of i think are in like the upper three billion years old we might have some minerals not quite rocks but sometimes there's minerals called zircons that uh form and then get reworked and then uh become just like they're called uh i'm, I'm not a petrologist so some of these terms might not be right, but I think they're called like xenoliths or xenocrysts. But basically it's like when there's a mineral from something else inside a rock of something else. So the rock that it's in might be like 3.7 billion years old, but the crystal inside it might be older. Um, okay, so so we're kind of starting from a little bit sooner here, which actually almost makes it, you know, even crazier if oh, yeah. most of the rocks we're finding are... You know, am I comfortable in kind of ballparking around the three billion year range is when a lot of our good records start existing? No. <laughs> okay. I would say a lot of our good record. Well, 
you could make an argument that our good record doesn't start until like 50 million years ago. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a sense of like how, you know, yeah. the 1 billion year unconformity, it seems that is uncommon. Large. Right. Especially, and I'm trying to put that in the context of, you know, how, how far back we have records that go and how big the, the typical unconformity is. That's kind of where I'm trying to place this in my head. Off the top of my head. I, I would not feel comfortable giving like an average for like the the average amount of time missing due to an unconformity, but okay. a billion years. I mean, it's worthy enough of calling great. So they don't just drop that on anything, right? So it is a very significant unconformity, and I don't. I personally don't know of another one that's even close to that. Gotcha. And so you guys were able to, this was reasonably close to where you're going to grad school, you said, right? Yeah. So um, Rapid City, which is where I currently live, uh, is just like at, at like sort of the base, like on the outskirts of, of the Black Hills. Uh, so like I said, I was sort of teaching the sedimentary geology and stratigraphy class. So we sort of went around the, the hills because we weren't concerned with all that super old, you know, plutonic stuff because that's all igneous metamorphic. Uh, we weren't really concerned with any of that. But, gotcha. And just really quickly, I just want to make sure I understand this because I, I think I missed it earlier. You were teaching during this, right? Yeah. So I was the uh, teaching assistant, which is very frequently how graduate students get paid. Um, we usually, basically it works. So if, if you're in the sciences and wanting to go to to grad school, uh, this this is important. So basically you get a chunk or all of your tuition waived and you get a paycheck for teaching a lab or doing research for the school. That seems like a pretty decent gig. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it gave it, it's given me, you know, three semesters of teaching experience, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, I got to do field work, which is great too. And with this specific field of work, again, I just want to make sure I understand this. So, this was not a, I'm going out in the field for a week or for five weeks at a time. You said this was kind of going out there in kind of a couple hour chunks over the course of a semester. Did I understand that correct? Pretty much. I mean, with, okay. with South Dakota, the weather is so unpredictable. We get it in at the, like the very beginning of the semester. So I think we went out for five of the first six weeks. Um, so about 15-ish hours total. Mm-hmm. And it was, so, it was mostly just, you know, teaching the students how to take good field notes, how to do, you know, certain specific field practices actually in the field instead of just, you know, in the lab without a good, you know, the best way to learn is by doing that. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of geologists are sort of their, their brains sort of work that way. So your, your kind of goals here were significantly different. Whereas in the past you were actually trying to do kind of field work and, you know, collect data for yourself whereas this time it seems like your goals were more making sure that your students knew what they were doing you were teaching the process instead of teaching the content or focusing on the content exactly um and like i was definitely still doing that teaching of like the content and, and practices back like in the lab when we didn't go do field work uh but yeah when we were out in the field this was mostly like okay here's how you do this go do it and, you know, 
try try to do good at it. And it's kind of weird. I would prefer to have had that class taught in the spring semester instead of the fall, especially in a place with, you know, a significant winter, because then it's like you don't have time to learn, uh, you know, proper like ways to describe rocks before you are sent outside to actually describe them. So it's kind of backwards in that way in that we sent them out to take field notes before we taught them sort of how to take field notes. And are we talking about freshmen here that you were teaching? Like what was, who were, you know, who were the, uh, the students in this case? This was mostly um, a good mixture of like sophomores, juniors, and a couple seniors. Uh, definitely okay. not freshmen. Okay. I wanted to make sure, I want to know just how, just how wet behind the ears we were right. when it came to the, mm-hmm. the kids that were going out there. And so what was that experience like teaching? You know, this is um, your first semester of grad school. You had been a um, an RA before in college, but yep. this is your first experience really, you know, kind of on the other side of the desk, your first experience actually teaching, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Mm-hmm. And it was... So what uh, was that like? It was interesting. So... Um... I remember that semester I did not have class on Mondays, but that lab was on Monday. Oh. And so like literally the first day of the semester, I got given the keys to a 12 passenger van. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. all right, let's go. And I'm like, I've, I've, I drive a Chevy cruise, excuse me. Uh, so it's amazing how much trust they give you right away. Oh, absolutely. And like, yes, I, I had to sign some paperwork, but uh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. You had to sign some paperwork and that's it. That's what's amazing. Oh yeah. No, the, the first time that I got behind that wheel, there was 11 students in my care also in the van. <laughs> so, uh, they really threw me to the wolves, but, uh, my teacher that I was with was fantastic. Um, you know, generally he was, he gave us like an outline of like what he wanted to cover in that lab. And then, uh, you know, me and I had, I had a co-TA. We just sort of just went and we're like, okay, so this is what he wants them to learn about these kind of rocks today. We went and we went to like the teaching collections. They're separate, <clears throat> separate from like our research collections. So we just went and picked out, okay, these rocks fit these descriptions. We want to teach them using these specimens, um, which was really nice because we sort of got to sort of gear it the way we wanted. And know for ourselves it made grading a lot easier because obviously we were the ones who sort of made the material which was nice Uh, (laughs) which is not always the case when you're a ta um sometimes yeah sometimes they'll just give you the lab and be like all right all right run it uh other times you'll make the entire lab by yourself and some teachers are much better than others about communicating uh what they actually want so I got, I got very lucky that my, my first teaching experience, I had a really great, you know, like main teacher for that class. And how, and how were the students? Were they excited? Were they making like tons of mistakes about learning? Were they like, what was, you know, if you, if you had to take your best guess, what was the student experience like during all this? Cause this has got to be, I'm assuming this is their probably first or damn near close to first experience out in the field. Yes and no. Um, so some of them. I, I believe they do a little bit of field stuff for some of their, like the freshman level geology classes, but um, you know, I didn't TA for any of those classes and I didn't take them here. So I don't know, but it's interesting because it was a mix of geologists and geological engineers. 
which might seem like a little bit of, you know, a kind of pedantic distinction, but there is a major distinction there. (laughs) That's what we're all about here. Pedantic distinctions. Because like engineers and people more in the brain with like a brain more geared toward like research science are very different people. Um, And, you know, you and I might have lots of engineer friends. (laughs) Yes, we do. They're very much like task oriented, very like sort of focused. And honestly, this might not quite seem to track with some of our engineer friends, but at least I found that the engineers were way more neat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to mute myself and continue laughing at that, just given (laughs) who our friends are. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't say our engineer friends, the few that uh, we have in common are the uh, the neatest. Although I will say my senior year in college, I did live with somebody who was Mm -hmm. um, getting an engineering degree and he handled all of our money and he had spreadsheets and everything. So I suppose that actually tracks um, kind of more broadly outside of our, uh, you know, small friend group. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, like everything that the engineers did was way more neat. Whereas some of the geologists seem to have more detailed notes, it seemed. Um, Mm. So it was a really interesting mix. And as a geological engineer, I think you do, I mean, this I'm sure varies widely, uh, but I think you do more field work and like rock description type things as a a researcher, as you do as like an engineer. So I think the geology students had, had at least some, kind of experience doing that kind of thing in the field, like field data collection, whereas the engineers I don't think did, or at least not as much. Uh, so it was really interesting to sort of experience that dichotomy because my undergrad school didn't have, I don't even think we had like a regular engineering program, let alone a geological engineering program. So it was really interesting. That sounds, that really sounds like a whole lot of fun. And this was um, this was just one semester. This didn't continue beyond that first semester of grad school. So that class, yes, that was just that one semester for this current semester and last semester. So that'd be fall 2020, spring 2021. Uh, I I've been TAing for a surveying class, which I think I've talked a little bit about before where, but it's like with the scopes and on the tripods that you see people next, next to the road doing that surveying. Uh, that's currently what I, what I TA. And, and that is, you know, the the times you indicated are, you know, pretty rosy and peachy for the uh, the rest of the world, you know, fall 2020 into spring 2021. <laughs> uh, how do, how are, you know, how is, you know, the state of the world and the pandemic specifically, I suppose, how is that affecting those classes? So uh, there's a lot of caveats to that because I live in South Dakota and South Dakota has no rules. Um, so I, I believe it, was it like one in 500 people has, has gotten COVID or died of COVID or something? And did I see something I, along those lines? I don't lines? know. I just know okay. that we've never had a mask mandate and we've never had a statewide stay at home order at like, even back like in March, 2020. When the whole world um, was falling apart. Right. Yeah. They just didn't, they just chose the, the path of doing nothing. Um, but I'm fortunate that my school being an all STEM school, uh, you know, all, all science school, uh, has handled it very well. You know, some of the students might not have, (laughs) uh, but the school administration itself has, has handled everything really well. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's, you know, cold comfort, but at least there's, you know, there is some governing body that is, you know, taking mm-hmm. things seriously around for you. And so how specifically has it affected these classes that you are, you know, ostensibly, I was going to say in charge of, I guess that might not be the correct word, but you, know, you yeah, have no. some sort of authority in. Uh, honestly, other than having less people in each class, which... It, and we didn't even have that many people in each class, you know, between the two semesters. Last semester, I think we had 16 in, in my class. And then this semester, we have eight. Um, but other than that, it really hasn't affected it because uh, it's nice and it's, it's two days a week. And so what he did last semester was I would have eight outside with me doing things uh, around like the quad. We set up like a, a course for them to survey. Um and I would be dealing with half the group outside and he'd be, he'd have the other group, like the main teacher would have the other group inside doing like a lecture and working on homework and things. Um, so it was nice to split it up that way. And then they just switched on, on whatever day, you know, you know, the, the other day of the week, it was a Tuesday, Thursday class. That seems like a pretty good, you know, way to you know split the baby here. Just try and make sure that you can still do the work while doing it safely. Yeah. And it was, you know, I think some like administrative officials, just as they were walking from building to building, kind of gave us, you know, I, I think they might have sent an email to, to, I don't remember exactly who they sent it to, but th- they're all working in groups of, I think, two or three. Um, maybe there was a group, I think there was one group of four last semester, but so they're all working on the same piece of equipment, right? So it's like, you can only be so distant while you're all trying to look at the same piece of equipment and learn from it, you know? Right. And if it was inside, I would 100% agree, but it's like, we're outside. We're all still wearing masks, you know? Um, And I always have like a, like a little package of like alcohol wipes to wipe stuff down, you know? So we were being, I thought, you know, properly precautious, but some of the administrative officials did not think so. Uh, Oh, jeez. I mean, we didn't get in trouble or anything, but, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, my exasperated sign notwithstanding, it is, you know, I would gladly take, you know, people that are going to choose to take the pandemic seriously than the other yeah, way around, absolutely. even if that can be frustrating at times, you know, I, I do want to make sure that that is where at least my priorities lie. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's fortunate that like this, this class mainly is, is a field class because it's you can't really learn how to do surveying in a building just because, you know, you need to set up like a, a course for it. And generally that's, I think our course is a little over an acre. So it's like, we need some space. Right. And, uh, you know, you can't teach these techniques inside and then, not have them also practice it outside because once the, when they get to a job site and, and this class class is mainly for those geological engineers and some mining engineers, um, you know, when they get to a job site in their career and their employers like, all right, you know, I'm giving you this, this job for today, go survey, whatever. And they're like, Oh, I only surveyed inside. That's going to look a really poorly on that person and be really poorly on our school. Right. So there's, you know, you need to find ways to be able to get these kids outside and doing real work. Exactly. 
Um, so I just took a quick look on um, the Washington Post. We were talking earlier about South Dakota's numbers. Right. Uh, by February, the numbers are that one out of eight residents had been infected with COVID-19 and one out of 500 residents had died from it. So when you were saying that South Dakota has not done a, um, you know, has not done a great job, you know, that was an understatement. And I think that's a credit to your school and the actions of you, know, you and other individuals to, you know, to, to take this seriously, to be able to still go out in the field and do the hard work that needs to be done while also doing so safely in an environment that really isn't all that conducive to the kind of safety that's required here. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I go where I do. Absolutely. And so I believe that's going to close the book on uh, your Black Hills teaching experience, unless there's anything else to, uh, to throw in, or are we heading to the last field work experience so far? I'll throw one more thing in. So uh, I don't know if we're still doing it at the end of this semester, but at least at the end of last semester, we actually took the students to uh, an old mine. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the mine was for. It wasn't like a gold was... mine. I don't was it think. coal? No, there's not really much coal uh, around the Black Hills, but and it was, well, mo- most coal mining's typically done with pit mining, so like surface mining. This was like a true, you know, tunnel into a rocky hillside type mine. Um, wow. So that was really cool. Uh, I had never personally been to a, a mine like that. I'd been to several like open pit mines. Uh, but it was, we actually had to go in the weekend before we took the students there and test like its oxygen levels. <laughs> and we went in with just like a big metal stick and started just sort of poking at the, at the ceiling. And I was there with like somebody who is like a mining engineer with like 20 plus years experience of like working in mine. So like I, if, if he's doing it, I'm confident that like it's safe and we're not going to die. But as but he's still, just that's like, a little nerve wracking. Yeah. As he's just jabbing the ceiling with this big metal stick in when we're all inside the mine, uh, I was a little nervous, but uh, anyway, interesting, interesting experience that was for, for me and the students. So I was just as, uh, just as interested as the students were in that case. I can only imagine what that must be like, where you need to go test the oxygen. I'm just trying to think of how, uh, uh how comfortable I would be if I were in your shoes. And like, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't all that low. I think it was maybe 2% lower, like at the farthest end of the mine. Which, Which is like, notable, but not like you're not going to die walking in there. I honestly, I didn't even notice it. Okay, it was so. it was worse when you were uh, climbing up uh, Yellowstone. Yes, it definitely was. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think that closes the book on the Black Hills, and that brings us to uh, the Missouri River. And so at this point, we have to be talking about something that's happening during uh, during COVID, correct? It sure was. Oh uh, so boy! This... So let's let's hear about this one at the Missouri River. This is in our notes, by the way. Do, do you want to read what you have written down in our notes here? Because this is a, a wonderful. I, reference. It would be my pleasure, Mike. So this bullet says Missouri River semicolon Field Camp Two Venomous Boogaloo. <laughs> uh, so this was my master's field camp, and uh, like I mentioned last episode, pretty much every undergraduate. Uh, geology degree requires a field camp. Many, many uh, geology master's programs do not. Uh, but mine mine does. 
And so I was really lucky just because, you know, doing more field work in more places is fun and different mm-hmm. experiences. Um, so this was along the Missouri River in sort of like South Central South Dakota. Um, so we have sort of like a standing contract and like it needs to be renewed every year, but I don't think it's ever not been renewed. Uh, but we have a contract with the Army Corps of Engineers who Ooh. I didn't know this, but technically owns like a certain uh, like radius on the banks of pretty much every river, at least big rivers. Really? Yeah. So I didn't know that. I had never known that. And I live on the St. Lawrence River, which is one of the largest shipping channels in the world. Mm-hmm. I never knew that. Um, <laughs> so that was interesting to me. And so we have a contract with them to survey, uh, you know, a certain length of the river uh, for fossils every summer. And uh, so my, my field camp was only two weeks, but I got asked if I wanted to uh, be a TA for, uh, there's two two-week sessions. I was doing the second two-week session. So I TA'd it for two weeks before my session started. And then I technically was also a TA for my second two-week session, even though I was also a student, which was a little weird, but I still got paid. So whatever. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But yeah, so this was really interesting because as I mentioned last episode in my undergraduate field camp, we had like a field station with like bunkhouses and uh, like a full-size kitchen. They were like industrial kitchen and like a main room where we ate and did work. No, that was, we didn't have that here. Um, <laughs> it was up to us to find our own lodging. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and granted it was, we were based out of a town. So like it wasn't hard, but uh, I personally cannot afford to stay at a hotel for a month straight. This I don't know about you. My question yeah, so I stayed at a campground and in in, in a tent <laughs> for <laughs> and like granted we had we had weekends off. Uh, so I would leave that town and it was only about three hours away from my apartment, you know, here in in Rapid City. Mm-hmm. So we That's had yeah, we had half days on Fridays, so I was usually back here by like five or six pm usually, usually before that. Um, but on Friday and then I would get back to my campsite, uh, like Sunday night, Sunday afternoon sometime. Uh, gotcha. And so this is, you know, this is the equivalent of you've jacked the prices up so high that I'm just going to go stay somewhere for free. Like, you know, well, so no, I did still have to pay. Oh, really? At the campsite? Yeah. It was, well, it was a campground. Oh, oh, okay. I'm thinking that you're just out in the woods, mountain man here, but okay. So this is, this, Um, this is, you know, maybe a half a step up from that. So there was a place where you could do that. Um, however, there was, I don't even think there was bathrooms. There certainly wasn't showers at that place. Okay. So it's like, I'm also not going to go, you know, anytime you're doing mul- even multi-day long field trips or field work, there's a general sort of like cl- cleanliness in general goes down. <laughs> yeah. Just because you're all doing it, you know, you're all doing field work, you're all getting sweaty, you're all being dirty, playing with rocks, you know, so. You're not offending anybody with your stench. Right. Um, But not showering at all for the entire week would have been horrible because, um, A, it's South Dakota in summer, it's real hot. 
so real sweaty. Mm-hmm. And also, um, because we're literally on the banks of this river, it was quite humid just because there was a lot of water evaporating from the river. So we were real sweaty and real gross and real dirty from being on these rocks all day. So the by the time was- Friday would have rolled around without any showers, I would have been absolutely disgusting and I was not here for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, at least if I could avoid it. So I did, I actually got kind of lucky. So I stayed at uh, a campground and because I was staying for so long, they actually gave me like a discounted rate, which was very nice. Oh, of them. Really? They, they didn't have to do that. Uh, well, that's, that's the kind of customer service that, uh, that you love to hear that, yeah, uh, exactly. you know, especially, you know, at a campground like that, when I'm assuming that they're not exactly making millions of dollars. Well, it was during, you might've heard of this or seen me post on, on Facebook about it, but it was, this was during that big biker rally that happens every year in South Dakota. <laughs> I, I think I heard something this year about that. <laughs> yeah. So even with COVID, it still happened. Um, of course it did. There, there were far fewer people than usual, uh, but there was still about 250,000 extra people in South Dakota for it compared compared to God. much closer to a million, like usually like around 700,000-ish. Um, so a lot of them stop in that general area because it's uh, about four, four and a half hours from the actual like location of the rally. Um, so sometimes a lot of them stayed, uh, as they were going to or from, you know, the, the place, because if they wanted to get there relatively early on like the first day of it, they would stay somewhere around, you know, uh, where we were at. So, so did you bring your motorcycle? I sure did not. I do not have a motorcycle (laughs) as, as that, that might surprise some people. I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't know. You really strike me, especially now with the, uh, with the bald beard look, oh. you really strike me as a motorcycle kind of guy. No, thanks. I, I like my <laughs> skull where it is. Um, <laughs> fair enough. So that's kind of the, um, the logistics, I think of a lot of it. What was yeah. the actual, what were you, you know, kind of again, going back to, you know, kind of the central question of, I think all of these kind of field trip exercises or field work exercises is what were you actually doing there what was the goal was this required for you said this was required for school for your grad program which is kind of you know if not unique to your grad program at least rare amongst similar grad programs so what was actually going on at this uh uh, field camp two venomous boogaloo so we the first two week session um so it was me uh my advisor uh our uh, preparator, who's the person that like, once we bring a fossil back, uh, she's the person who takes it out of the rock and, and, you know, makes it, you know, good enough for the research scientists to actually study super, super important person to have with you in the field because, mm-hmm. you know, they're the person who has to deal with it when you bring it back. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Uh, so it was the three of us. And then we had two undergrad students. One from, I think, University of Cincinnati, and then one from a small university in Texas that I had not heard of and don't remember. Um, So it was just the five of us. And we literally would meet at, uh, because the, I don't know if the Army Corps of Engineers paid for it or if the school paid for it, but uh, the two like full staff members uh, stayed in a hotel. So we would meet at Mm -hmm. their hotel at, I think, 8.15 every morning. That's not too terrible. No, that's not terrible at all. 
so then we would, because we were on the river, we had a boat. It was just like a flat bottom aluminum boat. And her name was Victoria's Secret. The, the name of the boat was Victoria's Secret? The name, yes, the name of the boat was Victoria's Secret because well, she would get very hot in the blazing <laughs> South Dakota sun. That That's why. Because she's hot. I didn't name it. Apparently, that's been the name for quite a long time, but that was her name. Um, so we would go get Vicky, as we called her. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yep, yeah, so we, we you had... Keep doing, uh, I'm going to mute myself. You do your... <laughs> okay. We, we had a Suburban uh, that belonged to the school. We would go pick up Vicky because uh, we stored her at like the Army Corps of Engineers office uh, in the town. And we'd go, you know, find a boat launch close to wherever we were going to work that day. We'd, you know, get Vicky un- unhitched and off the trailer. And then we'd, you know, by usually by about 9, 9.30ish, we were, uh, you know, at our first site. So basically what that consisted of once we were actually at the spot. And were you going to the same place every day or was this kind no. of, uh, you're going, so you were going to a new place every day? Yep. Yep. So the way the Missouri river around that area works is there's really big cliffs and then sort of valleys between them where like when it rains, the water would run off through these little valleys into the river. So we would be checking out these little valleys because that's where all the erosion was happening. So we would get to a spot. We'd, just sort of uh, grab the the anchors and the ropes, just sort of yank Vicky up onto the shore <laughs> and <laughs> make sure she wasn't going to go anywhere. And then we would uh, just sort of start scouring the ground for fossils. And it's exactly what you, what it sounds like. We just kind of walked around. We were told and shown, you know, what kind of things to look for, especially because um, I had never been on like a full, like, specifically just looking for fossils uh field work before this was sort of my first experience with it especially with vertebrates oh, wow. you know invertebrates i would have guessed that well yeah because um i hadn't done any so, some people will get like an internship or uh some kind of you know volunteer stuff in undergrad in the northeast that's mm-hmm. really hard to come by because vertebrate fossils just kind of don't exist in the northeast um right our rocks you know we've talked about this the rocks just aren't the right age for it really um, I mean, I've done it with like invertebrates before, but it's like, if you've seen one shell, you've seen most of them. Um, <laughs> okay. But, and like, again, I'm not meaning to offend any invertebrate people, but sorry. Uh, with, but with vertebrates, <laughs> but, you're, but you're not taking it back. I'm not taking it back at all. Uh, with vertebrates, it varies so much by the host rock. So we're working with two formations um, and one of them has several members, so like subdivisions of that formation. So, um, both were sort of mid to late Cretaceous, uh, but they were marine sediments. So they're from that, the Western interior seaway, which I think we've talked about before. So this big ocean that sort of cut North America in half, uh, sort of North to South, uh, during the Cretaceous period. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in one of the formations, the, it's like a sort of a, gray chalk almost and the fossils are black super easy to find fossils there uh okay that makes your job a little bit easier right but then the one above it is a black shale 
and uh, most of the fossils in that are sort of corroded by gypsum and are either kind of blackish or sort of like a maroonish color. So either way, both quite dark against like a dark rock. So much harder. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so those were the main two. So for the first two weeks, it was mostly me helping teach the undergraduate students how to take good field notes, uh, you know, how to properly think about, you know, what do these fossils tell us about the environment? Uh, what do the rocks tell us about the environment? Uh, because, you know, we told them that this is Western Interior Seaway, but it's like, but you might not always know that going into it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then also just sort of asking or teaching them about grad school and like what to expect from grad school. So, um, and mostly just being there as like extra support for uh, my teachers, mostly just like the, I hesitate to say this about myself, but like the muscle. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cause I, it was but usually but... me who was like pulling the boat onto the shore. Uh, right. So usually mean, pushing the boat back have somebody water. that it's helpful to have somebody that both knows what they're doing and is young enough to do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's basically it. We would just sort of get up, put the boat in the water, go to our spot. We'd be at each spot for about, it depended on how much area there was to cover at that spot, but like maybe half an hour, put the boat, you know, push the boat back into the water, move literally just like a couple yards down shore to the next one. Um, and just do that until uh, about four is when we started to head back because we wanted to have like the boat in by about five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we did that for the first two weeks. Uh, and then the undergrads, you know, went home. And then uh, when I was a student, my uh, office mate, Grace, was also there. So it was just the two teachers and then the two students. So, oh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean... Vicky is not a big boat, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, Vicky can only but fit I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six people. So okay, so I mean, I imagine that you guys, you guys all got to know each other quite well over the course of. Uh, you said it was two weeks. Yeah. Was it was uh, it an enjoyable experience spending that much time with everybody there, or should I edit part edit this question out of the podcast? No, it's fine. Um. One of the undergrad students in particular, I was not all that fond of. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I liked hanging out with, you know, my advisor and, and our preparator. You know, they're fun people to be around. Uh, but yeah. Gotcha. So that's cool. Um, and is yeah. it her, uh, or I guess it's, you know, somewhat cool depending on uh, what was going on. It sounds like it was still a net positive experience overall. Absolutely. Um, so, the, the, the big downside was this did have some restrictions because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously anytime we were in uh, the Suburban, because we all rode in the Suburban together, um, you know, when we went to pick up Vicky and then also to drop off Vicky at wherever we were, uh, whatever boat launch we were using that day. So we wore masks when we were in the Suburban, obviously. And it's actually funny. Grace and I made a lot of jokes because Grace and I live together. <laughs> So it's like, <laughs> do we really need to? But okay. yeah, Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we also wore the mask when we were in the boat, just because we had to be relatively close to each other. Um, but this year, we were supposed to uh, 
do some actual, actual like excavation. We didn't collect all that much for a couple of reasons. Number the the main one that reason that we didn't like collect all that much was because a lot of it just wasn't worthy of collecting because you know it could have been like you know a fish jaw fish individual just isolated fish jaws were by far the most common things that we came across other than like mm-hmm. single vertebra which like you can't even tell anything from it fish jaws you usually can tell at least uh like the genus from of it sometimes um mm-hmm. but it's like we've got 40 of these back in the lab we don't need this um <laughs> so mm-hmm. but we were supposed to excavate something um there are certain details that like i'm I think like I think technically as long as I don't give like anywhere near a location, it's probably fine. Um, but just for Ooh. safety's sake, I'm just not gonna specify too much. We were supposed to excavate a nearly complete thing. And <laughs> a nearly complete thing. That is a great job of being tantalizing while giving no specifics whatsoever. Right. And it's it, I will say it is it is a marine vertebrate. Okay. From, from the Cretaceous. Um a, a fairly large thing, um, roughly person-sized. Um, anywho, we were supposed to excavate that, but we but we didn't because in order to do that, you need to get rather close to each other. And, you know, they just didn't allow that. So we went to check on it, make sure that it was still there and made sure that, you know, if we needed to patch it up anywhere, we brought some, you know, tools and like uh, different glues that we use in paleontology to do that. Uh, but we didn't end up, taking it out of the ground. I really hope that they do get to this year because they found it at like the very end of uh, the 2019 field season, but it was so late in the field season that they didn't get, they didn't have time uh, to actually excavate it. So they plan on doing it this year, but then, you know, COVID. So hopefully in this, in this coming year, the 2021 field season, they get to, I really hope they do. Uh Obviously, the delays are, you know, the delays suck and they are what they are, but I'm glad that people are kind of being diligent about, you know, not rushing things just for the sake of rushing them or not skirting Mm -hmm. on protocols because they're inconvenient. You know, people are following the rules, which is good. You said it was a um, a marine vertebrate about human-sized. Talking like a mermaid here? Sure. Okay. I'll take that. I mean, that'd be a pretty great thing to get your hands (laughs) on. (laughs) Um, well, the, the tricky thing with like excavating anything relatively large is that we got to put it in the boat <laughs> as well. Um, oh, I never would have thought about that. Okay. So, and, and I asked them like, so what would we have done if we could have excavated this? And they were like, well, one of you would have had to stay and we'd be come back to get <laughs> you at some point. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Just, just so we're all on the same page, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, just so, just so that we all know what we're signing ourselves up for here. Right. Because so. it's like, well, because they were like, we need three people in the boat to uh, get it docked because you need the person driving and then one person at like the the front and the back in order to, you know, get the ropes on right. Um, you probably could do it with only two, like the driver and one other person. But uh, they were like, we want three people and, and there's really not space for three, four people and the fossil. So somebody would have had to stay. Uh, but (laughs) we did find, and and it really is a shame that we couldn't because, you know, in paleontology, like, you know, fossils are destroyed literally every day due to a, just like nature, you know, and we had it, we had it covered up. We put like a piece of, uh, like a tarp over top of it and then basically reburied the tarp. So it's like, a, it's really hard to find. So 
if poachers, which is another real significant thing, which is why I'm not really giving all that many details, um, you know, poach, fossil poaching is a massive, massive industry that many people don't even know exists. Including um, me. Yeah. So. Uh, That's a new episode idea. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of crazy stories, including one about Nicolas Cage. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, that's we can talk about that eventually. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, between just nature, fossil poaching, or even just like people somehow, I mean, this one would be very hard to destroy by accident because it's really out of the way. Um, but that can happen too. And so literally any time that you don't excavate a fossil that is worthy of excavation is really, really dangerous for that specimen. Um, so really is a shame that we didn't get to excavate that one. Um, it is. Are you going to be part of the team that goes back next year and tries to do it? Unfortunately, no. Uh, just because we have, we have a lot of new grad students this year and there probably just won't be room for me in the boat. And also I won't be a student here anymore, ideally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So not, I guess nothing that makes against sense. here, but you know, I'm planning to finish my master's this semester. So all good things eventually come to an end. So I think that kind of ends. Well, uh, I, ends I would your, like to, Oh, there's more before we oh, wrap it up. I would like to just because we did say that this one was called field camp Two: venomous boogaloo. We haven't talked <laughs> oh, about that. Oh, that's right. Uh, by all means, please. So a, a substantial portion of things that we ended up talking about were the various animal encounters that we had. <laughs> during this field season um so as you might imagine because it's south dakota there are lots of ranches around right so i'll get to the venom stuff in a minute in a minute um but uh a lot of ranchers are the the army corps of engineers lets a lot of ranchers just sort of uh let their cattle go into the river you know they're not gonna go super out deep into the river they'll sort of just stay you know it's basically just so they can drink um, and apparently some of them had put out their bulls relatively late this year. So mm-hmm. we had at least like four or five, like significant bull scares. And really, yeah, really? Yes. So there was the, the most notable one was we had just gotten to a spot and, uh, you know, my advisor, sort of, you know, the main person on the trip, uh, was sitting, uh, cause anytime we got to a new spot, we, you know, took notes about like, uh, the location of the spot, um, you know, what spot number that was for that day, the time, um, what formations you were going to be working in just general notes. So he was sitting just sort of on the ground next to the boat, uh, doing this. And so the rest of us were sort of more away from the boat, taking our notes. And we look up and there's uh, well, a, a cow that we thought was, <laughs> that we thought was just a cow, you know, not a bull. And right. it was walking sort of like it came around like a corner and was walking sort of slowly toward uh, Darren, the, the, my advisor. And we were like, Hey, Darren. He's like, yeah, what's up? It was like, <laughs> there's, there's a cow right there and he's like he this looks, is like out of a movie well well it gets it gets worse so he looks and he was sort of looking at it from the front so it was kind of tough to tell and he was like no nah, it's just a cow it's fine and 
but he's also nearly blind. Um, so yeah, it got, and it kept getting a little closer and then we, you know, I got like a decent like side view of it and saw that it was very much not a cow. Um, and I was right. We were like, Darren. And he's like, what? <laughs> like kind of annoyed. He's like, I'm taking my right. notes. And we're like, Darren, get in the boat. And he's like, what? And he looks and it's staring at him and was kind of pawing the ground a bit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. This is like a movie. Oh my gosh. Yep. So he gets in the boat slowly. Mm-hmm. And then the bull just kind of goes on its way. You know, we, we all moved, the rest of us moved, so that there was like a big dead tree between us and the bull, but Darren was probably not more than 25 to 30 feet from it. Good God. That, yeah. Oh and, God. you know, most people have seen cows, but like, I just did not realize how incredibly jacked bulls are. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen, you know a bull or I think a cow, you know, up close. And I imagine it's one of those things where you see it up close and you're like, Oh, I get it now. Well, so I, I had seen cows up close before, but like not really bulls. I'd seen some steers, um, Mm -hmm. up close before too. But like, I don't know if it's just like them not being castrated just makes them way more ripped. But like you could visibly see like the muscles ripple, under its skin as it walked like unbelievably jacked animal now correct me if i'm wrong here but this was field camp two venomous boogaloo i don't believe <laughs> that bulls are uh, are venomous so i assume that um you know this would be a good story in and of itself but i believe there's more to the story if i were to guess yeah so honestly the bulls were more exciting because frankly they're kind of more dangerous uh, than Uh, So there's one species of venomous snake that lives in South Dakota, and it's the prairie rattlesnake. Mm -hmm. But prairie rattlesnakes are known to be rather docile, um, which is a... Oh, that's comforting. Well, which which is is and isn't because they're pretty hesitant to strike, but they're also pretty hesitant to rattle, which means if you are near one, it might not let you know. Huh. So, the whole genesis of this podcast was me posting a picture of a rattlesnake um, on Facebook. So, this was one day we were out on the hot, on the, you know, this hot outcrop that had some, like, little caves sort of in it toward the top. And I was just kind of climbing around on it, was going to put my hand there to, uh, you know, give myself a little extra leverage to pull myself further up the outcrop. And... Good thing I looked before I did because there was probably like a four to five foot rattlesnake. This was a really big snake. And like, I like snakes. If it's a non-venomous snake, I I would not, I mean, I might hesitate, but I would be more than happy to just go pick up, you know, even like a bull snake, which are very angry snakes. They're not venomous, but they just are generally not the nicest of snakes. Um, Right. But I would not hesitate to go pick that up. So I like snakes a lot. However, being like, I don't know, two seconds away from putting your hand on a four foot rattlesnake, uh, that was a bit scary. So that was the first one we saw. And just um, how, like when we're saying these are venomous, like, you know, let's say you get bit, what, like, 
do we have odds or percentages here? Like what, you know, so what's the worst case scenario? Prairie rattlesnakes are not like incredibly venomous. Um, it'd put me in the hospital for sure. Um, okay. But the, the biggest danger is like, if you got bit by a rattlesnake and then could get to a hospital within 20 to 30 minutes, you'd pretty much be fine. You'd be, you'd probably lose some function of your hand for a little bit, but it would probably come back in a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they sort of put this in perspective on like our first day of uh, this field camp, because we had like a sort of safety briefing before we actually went out and did anything. So we're like, even if you might, even if you can see town from wherever we're at, we're probably at least two hours away from getting you to a hospital because we got to get in the boat. We got to, we got to push the boat off from the shore. We got to dock the boat. We got to pull. Well, at that point, if somebody got bit by a snake, we probably might not pull the boat out of the water. We probably just would take off. Um, right. But it's like, we're a solid 40 minutes by boat to the boat launch. And then probably another solid 40 minutes th- to town. So, it's so like, you were not getting the immediate care that no. you would need for a snake that should be, you know, in the context of venomous snakes, you know, reasonably treatable, but you are not getting the immediate treatment that that would need. Exactly. So if they were like, if you got bit on the hand, there's a really solid chance that you might never get full function of your hand back. So on that happy thought, go do field work. Um, so that was the first one that I saw, um, but not the most dangerous one that I saw. So um, this was on, I think it was a Thursday. I think uh, Darren had like a, a meeting to attend. So we didn't do any boat stuff that day. We just went to some places that we could get to uh, without the boat. And it was, it was a little drizzly, really kind of overcast, just really dreary day. It was right before lunchtime. So all of us were kind of like tired, you know, not paying as good of attention as I should have anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just kind of walking along this beach. Um, and there were these two big slab, actually, I think three big slabs of rock at about hip level or so on my right. So I had my rock hammer in my hand. It was just sort of tapping the rocks with my hammer as I was walking by them, not thinking anything of it. Um, and in the cracks between the second and third rock, and these are roughly like table sized slabs of rock. Um, I walk by it and sort of notice out of the corner of my eye, something in there. So I walk by it and then sort of like look back and there's just a rattlesnake there less than like two feet from me. Um, under these rocks that I was just hitting with my hammer, and I'm like, Ugh. I literally just like froze and like slowly backed away. This one was a much smaller snake than the first one. Um, but that's also not necessarily a good thing because adult snakes generally don't want to inject their venom into you because it's not for you. It's for their food. So... <sighs> But smaller snakes don't necessarily have that kind of control. So if you get bit by a big snake, yeah, you might get a larger, you know, quantity of venom. But they also have the option to not actually inject you with the venom. Whereas the smaller, younger snakes don't, might not have that control. So a a smaller snake bite is, can be even more dangerous than like a big snake bite. 
Um, so I just slowly backed away and went and told the rest of the group. I'm like, okay, don't, don't go over there. There's a snake over there. And we couldn't really get to the rest of the outcrop without walking past that. So we're like, well, I guess we're done here for the day. <laughs> um, those were two like significant rattlesnake uh, encounters. But like I said, the bulls were probably realistically more dangerous than the snakes were. Uh, but rattlesnakes are a lot more fun to talk about. I just realized my mic was muted for some reason. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple things I was going to say. Um, but just given given the kind of work that you're doing um, and what the, the amount of time you're going to be out in the field, do you expect to at one time you know, be bitten by a rattlesnake or to have some sort of a, you know, a violent encounter with a bear or a bull? Like, is there... Is that just kind of an occupational hazard that you're anticipating, or would that be kind of extraordinary, even given the kind of work that you're doing? So you're asking me if I expect to be bitten by a rattlesnake at some point in my life? Not, I mean, so bitten by a rattlesnake might be a bit exit, but like, do you like, you know, these kind of, you know, we've talked just even on this episode of a number of hazards just with wildlife, you know, you were um, hoping to run into a grizzly bear in Yellowstone. We had, you know, some bulls and snakes here. Like is eventually, do you expect to have, you know, a, a less than pleasant encounter with one of these animals or is that not expected even given the kind of work that you're doing? I say generally not like by far the biggest risk of doing field work is either traffic accidents like that's probably like the biggest like cause of like death or even serious injury um associated with field work but um more likely is like dehydration heat stroke that is those are things that i would be much more concerned about than like dealing with an animal okay gotcha because just the sheer volume of different animals that could uh you know, that could seriously hurt you that we talked about even only on this episode, you know, is kind of, uh, is kind of mind blowing. So, but I'm glad that that's, um, you know, as long as you take the proper precautions, a lot less of a worry than I might've originally thought. Yeah, absolutely. So I believe we are significantly over time, but I believe that kind of wraps <laughs> it up. I do have, I do have one final question for you. Um, yeah. if you want to just quickly answer it is, um, kind of what's next. So we've kind of gone through your main field work so far in these three episodes, what uh, do you have any guesses as to what's next? Do you have anything that you would like to do? What can we expect in uh, in episode four of the series, or part four so, of the series? I should say. I have one other fieldwork experience, but it's quite recent and it's like not as big. But I did some like uh, private consulting for uh, a big couple shout that... over here. <laughs> well, so there was this couple that came into the museum on campus and was asking you know, for like a grad student or somebody to come, you know, show them around their ranch, you know, cause they had, they said they had some interesting like rock formations on their ranch that they wanted to, they were just curious about. And I was like, I mean, sure. Are they, well, are they going to pay? And they were like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm down. Um, yep. You're in. Yeah. So I went and uh, it was really neat. They're a really nice couple. Um, but like not much to write home about. They had some really interesting rocks that I, you know, told them about. Um, but we didn't like collect anything. We didn't try and dig out anything. Uh, but, you know, so that happened. I could see myself doing that more in the future. 
um, the jobs that I'm currently applying for, uh, a couple of them are like community college teaching positions and in their um, job descriptions basically said that like, be prepared to teach classes that require field trips. And I'm like, cool, right up my alley. Yeah, um, yeah you're in. And and be able to like plan those field trips, which would be a new experience for me. So I'd be, you know, really happy to do that. Um, I also applied for some museum jobs, which realistically probably have less field work associated with them. Um, but most museums, especially some that are like relatively well-funded, uh, do have like, you know, each summer have like field expeditions um, to go out and try and collect some new stuff. So I'd love to like volunteer to go or if, even better if they could pay me to go. Uh, that'd be <laughs> yes. cool. But for in the future, it'd be, you know, just like sort of some of this in this episode has been, but like, you know, work af- affiliate instead of like, in my own free time. Right, right, right. Well, that sounds like it could be for um, some diverging paths in the future, but definitely something that hopefully we'll get to talk about eventually, particularly if you uh, if you went to go work at a museum, well, there might be less field work. I think that there would be quite a bit of content just to work with from there. That depends because like some museums are very particular about revealing things about like their inter- internal workings and, uh, stuff like that. So that would greatly depend on the museum. But Well, if you could pick one of the cool ones, I'd appreciate it. I'll try my best. <laughs> Very nice. So my name is Mike. That is Gavin. This concludes, at least for now, our series on Gavin's fieldwork. Gavin, thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. Absolutely, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 